Hi, everyone. You're listening to Who I Met Today, and I'm your host, Pam Lamp. I'm all about doing one tiny new thing every single day. And on this podcast, I invite you to come along with me and discover something new through conversations with people from all walks of life. I hope you enjoy listening to these interviews and exploring new territory with me. For more people stories and episodes, please visit my website, whoimettoday.com. My guest today is Amanda Skinnendor. Not long ago, I read The Second Life of Muriel West. The historical fiction story revolves around Carville, an actual place in Louisiana where people with leprosy were quarantined. I'd never heard of Carville, and it existed until not that terribly long ago. And so, I contacted Amanda, the author of this and three other historical fiction novels, to learn more. Hi, Amanda. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. I'm excited to talk with you. You know, I like to read all sorts of books, but my favorite novels are the ones that weave a beautiful and compelling people story while introducing me to something completely new, something I've not heard about before. And your novel, The Second Life of Muriel West, was one of those books. I recommended it to so many people. Do you mind giving listeners a brief synopsis of that story? Absolutely. And thank you. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. The book is about a woman. It's set in the 1920s. She's a socialite married to a silent film star living kind of this glamorous life in California when unexpectedly she's diagnosed with leprosy, a disease at the time for which there was no cure. So she's whisked away from her family, and sent to the National Leprosarium, which was in rural Louisiana. And there she must not only grapple with the disease itself, but also this crippling stigma that came along with the disease and find a way to make a new life for herself. Well, it was fascinating, and I just loved everything about this book. I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers here, but the book details how people with leprosy were treated back in the late 1800s. It was um, just heart-wrenching to read about. I know that Muriel was put on a boxcar and taken along with other leprosy patients to Carville. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. And certainly in the 1800s, Carville itself was founded in 1896, initially as the Louisiana Leper Home, and then in the 1920s, early 1920s, became the national leprosarium where everyone, certainly in the continent of the United States, who had the disease was sent. And that treatment of these people continued through really the 1950s, 1960s, and there's still, I would say, quite a stigma today. So in Miro's experience, and this was not an uncommon experience, if you contracted the disease, you were placed in either the pest house or the isolation ward at your hospital where you lived until it could be arranged that you would be sent to Carville. And as in Muriel's case, they would sort of put you in a boxcar, send you down, and they would sometimes burn the boxcar afterward because there was this great fear of the disease, which I will say is, in fact, unfounded. And even in the 1920s, when this took place, they knew that the disease was not contagious or very, very, very minimally contagious, I will say. And still there was this great fear. 
And then these patients who were sent to Carville, they lived there, some of them their entire lives. It was fenced in with barbed wire at the top so that the patients couldn't couldn't leave. And in the beginning, you had to get a certain number of negative skin tests, 12 in a row, before they would let you leave. They would actually give you this piece of paper that said you were no longer a menace to the public health. And if you never could amass enough negative skin tests, you stayed there for the rest of your life. And that was the case with many, many people. And not only were you sort of imprisoned within this facility, for decades, there was no phone. If you didn't have family who was, A, willing to come see you, and B, lived close enough to do that, you just had no no ability to ever see your family again. And the only means of communication was by letters. These patients, they couldn't marry. They couldn't vote for again for decades. And really their lives were very much whittled down. And I think what amazed me so much and what inspired me to want to write this story was even among these circumstances, people who were sent there, they found a way to create connections and find meaning in their lives. And I liked reading about how they did that. Carville was somewhat of a tiny town, correct me if I'm wrong, with schools and churches and the patients or the residents, I should say, had jobs and recreational facilities. Yes. So, and it was sort of, I would say, like built up over the years and certainly in the 1920s when the government took over, they made some improvements, but there was a Catholic church. We had many patients for Catholic there was a Protestant church. There was a building that they used for a school. They did have a little tennis court. They had a couple of holes of golf. So they were, in so much as they could, trying to make a space for the patients not only to to be separated, isolated, but also for them to have recreation that they could do with each other. And then the patients themselves took it upon themselves to create even more. So for example, they created this club called the What Cheer Club. And I referenced that in the book. And it was just with this intention of let's try to make our lives a little bit more livable. And they had parties that they would organize around the holidays, the 4th of July. Again, this is Carville is in Louisiana. So they had a Mardi Gras parade and party. And it was all, I mean, these were things that they could just sort of cobbled together, right? Like these are not great big celebrations, but they would get the chef to make a special meal. They would pull together whatever they could to make little homemade costumes. And they celebrated as best they could, not only for, like I mentioned, Mardi Gras, but other holidays as well. They developed or started a theater troupe. They had bands that would play. And so they really did try, I think, to find, again, as much as they could to make their lives as normal as possible. But they really were at the same time, very isolated and limited in what they could do. Well, I'd always thought of leprosy as kind of an archaic disease that didn't present itself in recent years, and I'd never heard of Carville. How did you find out about that, Amanda? You know, that was very much my experience as well. When I thought of leprosy, I thought of long-ago times and faraway places. And it wasn't until I stumbled upon this little book, it's called Carville Remembering Leprosy in America, that I learned about Carville and about the incidence of leprosy, which is actually today called Hansen's disease, the incidence here in the United States. And the disease was for many centuries endemic in certain states in the United States. So 
in particular, several states in the South, like Louisiana, Florida, Texas, California also had some sort of sustained transmission is what we think about when we think about something that's endemic. So then I, I read this book, Cargill, from front to cover. I pulled it off the shelf at my library. I just read it and I was so struck by how much I didn't know, how much I should say that I thought I knew and didn't know, right? So much I got wrong about the disease. And I didn't know, for example, as I mentioned before, that it is not a highly transmissible disease. 95% of us are naturally immune. And it's not spread in the way that we think it's spread. You know, we have this idea that if you touch someone or touch a surface, you're going to get the disease. They believe it's actually spread by respiratory droplets, similar to the flu. And it was, again, I was just so struck by my perception of the disease and what it was really like. And then even more so, I was struck by the cruelty that these people experienced, this really just ripping them from their homes, from their lives, forcing them. And, and this was actual law. It was in the state law that the government could do this, that they could take these patients and quarantine them until, again, they were deemed not a public menace or a menace to the public health. And then finally, I think what really inspired me was the way that despite all of the harrowing circumstances that these people faced, the way that they still came together and tried to make meaningful lives. I will say that in the book, the medical explanations and the details and the research were all very thorough. And I am certain your nursing background played into that. What type of nurse are you, Amanda? I'm an infection prevention nurse. I've been doing that for about eight, just over eight years now. And that helped quite a bit. And perhaps is also part of what initially drew me to the topic. I find, you know, medical history very fascinating. And it also helped with, I think, being able to read about the disease because that was a big part of my research, not only what we understand about the disease today, but what they understood 100 years ago, because it wasn't the same. And we've had so many medical advancements in the past 100 years. And so it allowed me to, I think, approach that material with sort of a baseline of understanding. But I had so much to learn because Hansen's disease is not something that is really taught very much in nursing school, because today in the United States, there are only 100 to 250 cases diagnosed every year. Have you ever come into contact with Hansen's disease? I have not. I do know that very, very rarely we do have cases here in Las Vegas. But as I mentioned, because it's completely an outpatient disease, it's not something that I would typically see at the hospital. It's something that is treated usually through the public health department. And what the medical community now knows is that Hansen's disease is caused by a slow-growing bacteria. It's not as contagious as they feared back in the late 1800s and, and well into the 1900s, really. And it can yeah. be treated with antibiotics. Is that correct? Yes. Treated and, for all intents and purposes, cured. Cured. Yeah. I know you based your characters from your imagination, but the circumstances were based on fact and history. And how did you learn all the facts and the history? So I began studying here in Las Vegas, sort of dipping my toes in, again, learning about the disease and then also very specifically about Carville the Place. And I was able to see that there's a museum and kind of archive 
that still exists in Louisiana. And I contacted the curator and was able to arrange a block of time to go to Cardville and research there. And that was such an incredible experience because... Oh, I bet. Yeah, it's just amazing. The museum is small, but incredible. I encourage anyone (laughs) who is in that part of Louisiana. So it's kind of, the site is located right along the Mississippi, just in between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. So if you're in that part of the country, I do encourage a visit. They have wonderful exhibits, but what was really invaluable to me was all of the archived material that the curator was able to help me access. So I was able to see lots of pictures, letters that the patients and also the daughters of charity who were the the women who nursed the patients and not only nursed the patients, they worked in the pharmacy and in the lab, like all they did so much there at Carville. I was able to read their letters. I was really interested and wanted to be sure that I was getting the treatment pieces right. And there was a lot of information I could read about the early treatments that they were trialing during the 1920s. And incredibly as well, I was able to stay at what was the old infirmary that's now sort of kind of a hostel for the National Guard. And that was just so neat. I think being able to be in the space and really see and imagine what would it have been like to, again, just be really torn apart from your life and transported to this place. I mean, even today, it feels rural and a bit haunting, truthfully, too. There's a cemetery there at the site, and I visited the cemetery. You just you really get this sense of, I think, of the isolation that the patients must have felt when they were there. Well, I've heard that they referred to it as the disease of the living dead, mm-hmm. and they believed that their families were better off without them and the stigma of the disease, which is just heartbreaking. Are the patients buried in the cemetery under their real names, or did they use their imaginary names that they had at Carville? Yeah, so whenever a new patient came, it was one of the very first questions that they were asked during their sort of intake processing was, what new name do you want to go by? It was just this assumption that clearly you don't want anyone from your old life to know that you have this disease, so let's give you a new identity. And so in particular, in those early decades in the 1900s and before patients did, they took what they would call their Carville name and they went by that name for the rest of their lives. And that's what's often on the gravestones, which I think adds to some of the, I think just the sadness of the place. sadness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. a name that wasn't their real name. There's a patient number because everyone was assigned a patient number, which I think is obviously the nurse part of me sees how that's, (laughs) like a processing thing, right? Kind of an administrative thing, but also in a way dehumanizing and to see this fake name and a patient number and maybe a death date on the gravestone and that's it. You you really do get the sense of the way that so much of these people's identities was stripped away from them. And when did Carville close? So Carville closed officially only a couple of years ago, really. The last patient, I believe, left in 2012, 2012 or 2015. Which I think is amazing. I know, I know. And I think too, like, I had no idea that it even existed. And then to know that it was still operational. What happened is, as I mentioned, the disease is now an outpatient diagnosis. 
And so over what I would say the last 50 or so years, Carville had begun transitioning away from, you know, taking patients to offering more research and support for people who were treating patients just in their communities. So for a while, they allowed patients who had been there, maybe who had come when it was still a disease for which you had to be quarantined. And those patients were allowed to stay. The Daughters of Charity, who I mentioned were the nurses and and really everything at the facility, they left in 2005. And then the research part of the facility also moved to Baton Rouge around that time. And some of the patients, of course, decided they had wanted to stay because, you know, you can imagine having spent so much of your life apart from society it would be very, very difficult to then suddenly just go and rejoin. And also many of the patients suffered ailments like many, many patients went blind. That's a very Mm -hmm. common aspect of the disease. Other patients had to have their limbs amputated. So there were additional difficulties of just, you know, going back to what we might think as our day-to-day life. And so those patients were allowed to stay until either they, they died or at the very, very end, they went to the last patient went to a nursing home in Baton Rouge. Amanda, do you know if isolated communities like this still exist in some parts of the world today? Yes, absolutely, they do. They and do. I think mm-hmm. one of the sad things about the disease is that so we now, as you mentioned, can cure the disease with antibiotics. And in the United States, we've done a very good job of treating and controlling the disease. You know, I mentioned we have a very low incidence here, 100 to 250 cases a year. But in other parts of the world, you have upwards of 100 to 200,000 cases being diagnosed each year. So there are places, India, for example, Brazil, other places around the world that just continue to see really high transmission. And, you know, even as medicine progresses, the stigma that we associate with diseases, I think that that doesn't always progress at the same rate. And so that was a big reason that they wanted to change the name was because there is so much moral weight that is attached to the idea of leprosy, right? Like you say that word and it just conjures this negative image. And that stigma has not gone away, not here in the United States and not abroad as well. Well, again, that book is The Second Life of Muriel West. It was published in July, 2021. And you have another book that's come out since then, The Nurse's Secret, which was released last September, another historical fiction novel that I really enjoyed and learned so much as I was reading it, my favorite combination in a book. Can you give us a cocktail version of that book? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So The Nurse's Secret is about the first nursing school in America, which was at Bellevue Hospital in New York and opened in 1873. But contrary to the title, the book is actually about a thief, a woman. She's a pickpocket, a con artist extraordinaire, and she's pinned for a crime, a murder, actually, that she didn't commit. So she's on the run from the police and trying to figure out where she can hide out. And she sort of has this motto. She's got several mottos, actually. But one of them is, you know, the best place to hide is in plain sight. So she decides to lie her way in to the Bellevue Training School for Nurses, thinking again that it'll be the perfect place. The cops will never look for her there. And then what ensues, she does get in. But of course, she's entirely ill-suited 
to be a nurse there. She knows, you know, nothing of medicine. And at the time, too, the the traits that were desired of a nurse, you know, were very, very stringent. You had to be obedient. You had to be quiet. You had to <laughs> have a good education. They wanted you to be from good breeding, right? Good stock. And so Una is really none of those things. And so there's a whole bunch of, you know, hijinks that then ensue when she's there at the hospital. And aren't you glad your nursing training wasn't like the training she went through? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, it's another way in which we've come a long way and medicine has come a long way. Do you have another book on the way? I am currently working on, yes, my fifth book. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a title for it yet, but it's about actually a woman physician in 1900 who's sort of on the brink of ruin. And so she joins a traveling medicine show. She's kind of lost all faith in herself and her ability to practice medicine, like real medicine. So she travels along with this troupe of misfit performers and they end up in Galveston, Texas in September, which is right when they had is this devastating hurricane. It was the worst natural disaster in the United States in history. And that sort of puts her to this ultimate test of, you know, can she rise to this moment of, you know, being surrounded by an island of people who are then in need of, of great medical care? And can she sort of find the faith in herself again to, to help? Do you have a publication date for that yet? June 2024. Oh, good. Well, I'll look forward to it. Thank you. Well, Amanda, it's time for one new thing. I always like to ask my guests what tiny or large new thing they've discovered or done lately. I love that. I think it's such a fun idea to be always thinking and trying something new. And one new thing that I would love to share is box breathing. A friend of mine who is a therapist recommended it to me. I was going to an event and I was really nervous about it. And she said, this is a great way to calm yourself, kind of increase the level of oxygen in your blood and just keep you a little bit more even keeled. And the way that you do it is you breathe in for the count of four, you hold that breath for the count of four, breathe out for the count of four, and then hold that for the count of four. And then again, right? So you breathe in again, hold, breathe out, hold, and then repeat for at least, she said, four or five cycles at least. And I did, I've been using it not just for that event, but for just some of those times where I do find myself, you know, in little ways, getting nervous or even a little exasperated, maybe, you know, traffic is really bad. And I just remind myself, okay, let's do this breathing. And I find that it really, really helps me to sort of resettle myself. Box breathing. I'm going to try that. Yes. And it's just a very, very easy thing that you can do. And I think it ties in a little bit with the mindfulness idea. And so it's been a real help for me. And I hope maybe a help for our listeners too. That's a great idea. Well, Amanda, I've really enjoyed talking with you today. I wish you lots of luck with your next novel. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Well, that's it for today's show. A huge thank you to Amanda for joining me. If you're interested, I've listed Amanda's books and a link to the Carville Museum in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, I hope you'll listen to other episodes and spread the word about this new show. A huge thank you to Brian at Top Tier Audio for his advice and guidance 
And thanks to you for tuning in. And remember, I'd love to hear from you if you discover a fun new thing. My email is pam at whoimettoday.com.